Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan, welcoming you to a new season of Page Break, recorded here in the beautiful mountains of Utah. I have had a lovely break where I've spent my time working on Glass Immortals Book 2 and getting way out ahead on new episodes for the podcast. I hope you've all had a good summer and are looking forward to the cold, dark reading time of winter. A couple of quick bits of admin for you. If you haven't picked up my new epic fantasy, In the Shadow of Lightning, head on over to your local bookstore or your favorite online marketplace and nab one for yourself. If you have, be sure to leave a review and tell your friends. For those of you local to Utah, I'm going to be at Salt Lake Fanex on the weekend of September 23rd. You should be able to find me on a couple of panels or at the Bard's Tower booth. Now on with the show. We kick off season two with my guest, science fiction author Ty Frank. Ty is best known as one half of the writing partnership James S.A. Corey, creators of the wonderful Expanse books and producers and writers for the TV show of the same name. Ty has also worked as a personal assistant for George R.R. Martin and has written for Star Wars and gaming properties. Ty and I chat at length about his partnership with Daniel Abraham, the other half of his pseudonym, including where they started and how the work has evolved over time. We also talk about the complexities of making a TV show and the happy accidents that saw him and Daniel so heavily involved in its production. Enjoy my conversation with Ty Frank. It's been years since I've seen you. It's been years since I've seen anybody because of COVID. But how have things been shaken out lately? I think the, if I remember correctly, the, the last time we ran into each other in person was at Comic-Con, right? Yeah. Was it at Comic-Con? Maybe Emerald City? No. I'd, oh, or, or was it uh, Was it the the one in Arizona? Oh, Phoenix. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I think it might have been. Five years in a row, so probably that one. Yeah. Okay. I knew, I knew it was some sort of Comic-Con was the last in-person meeting, but that was a long time ago. I know. Yeah. It just, time just passes. I, like you're, and you're kind of in a totally different spot now than you were back then. Um, you've got... Not just getting a TV show, you know, everybody <laughs> talks about, oh, that's, you know, that, that's kind of the golden thing for any writer, but like getting one that was, that's genuinely received amazingly. Uh, yeah, we were, we were definitely lucky there and have s- sort of started a, you know, like a, a second career as a, as a television producer and writer, which, you know, most, most TV writers who or excuse me, most novel writers who get a TV show are never actually going to work on it, you know? They get to they get to cash the check and see their book sales go up, but that's that's usually the extent of it. So we lucked out there too. Well, and what was what was kind of the the prompt that ended up with you guys in the writing room? Uh, we asked. They said yes. Yeah, that's simple. Huh? It it well, you know, I mean, it was uh, mostly because it, it was the first TV show uh, Alcon Television had ever made. So Alcon, the the studio that made the show. Um, they were a movie studio. They had made a bunch, you know, they made like uh, The Blind Side, that Sandra uh, Bullock movie, and a bunch of other stuff. So they started a television division, and uh, Sharon Hall, who was the the executive producer on The Expanse in the first season and has been with the show ever since, was the president of Alcon Television. They had just hired her from, I think, Sony. So it was all kind of this brand new thing, and. Um, they they hired a couple of writers, a couple of feature writers to come in and write the pilot uh, who had never written television before. And they did hire a showrunner, but he was late to, you know, that we'd already done a bunch of development before he got there. Um, and that was because the two feature writers who wrote the pilot had never run a television show. And it turns out that's a hard job. So they hired a guy to come in and do that. And by the time he got there, we had already been working with Sharon 
and and Mark and Hawk, the two the two feature writers who are at the pilot. And we're just hanging out with those guys and and working with them, developing the pilot and developing the pitch for the show. And at some point during that process, we I had just said to to Mark or Hawk, one of the two, I said, "Hey, um, I'd love we'd we'd love to try to write a script, you know, because Daniel and I had had messed around with screenplays just on our own, trying to figure out the format." We're like, hey, we'd love to write a script. And they were like, yeah, you should totally do that. That sounds great. And the reason they said that is because they didn't know any better. Because <laughs> normally you would not say yes to that. So by the time Narain, our showrunner, came there, he was meeting with Sharon. And Sharon said, oh, by the way, Mark and Hawk have agreed to allow the, the novelists in the writer's room and have committed to giving them a script in the first season. Narain's reaction to that was like, are you sure that's a good idea? That usually doesn't work out well. But he, it was too late at that point. They, they already agreed to do it. and then. We just worked well enough with Narain in that first season that he was by the second season, he was like, of course, you guys are coming back. And, um, you know, we started getting promotions. And I think by season three, we were EPs on the show and, and all that. Yeah, man, that's that like that's just so dang cool. That it worked out like that. I, I think I think a lot of novelists would not do well in that environment. But I think the ones who would do well are the ones who are very uh, good at collaborating. I mean, Daniel and I were already a collaboration, so that was not a big deal to add more people to that mix. Um, but if you've always worked by yourself, you need everything to be your way, which that's totally fine as a novelist. I mean, the great thing about being a novelist is you can have things your own way. Um, you're the you're the god of that world, and you get to decide how it goes. But if that's really important to you, you will not survive TV. So I I'm actually super fascinated by that because I I I, I generally feel exactly what you just said, I kind of get that kind of vibe, but like I, there's part of me that thinks, Oh, it would be so cool to collaborate on something. But there's also a part of me that's like, Oh, Brian, you've got a bit of an ego. (laughs) You like to be in control. (laughs) Don't do that kind of thing. I don't even know if it's ego. I think it's, I mean, some people are, uh, solo musicians and some people are, are band musicians. And I don't think one is more egotistical than the other. I think it's just a different style of play. And I think some novelists need to have the final t- touch. They need to have the final say they need to, you know, they, they need to have it there be their voice or it, it's not satisfying. And I don't think that's an ego thing. I think it's just the way some people like to work. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. What, when you guys, when you guys are working on the books, what what kind of division of labor is there? Uh, well, I mean, it changes with every book. Oh, really? Yeah. In the first book, we split it up by, um, because there were two point of view characters in the first book. So I wrote one, he wrote the other, Daniel wrote the other one. Uh, that carried on through most, I think the second book, we split it up again because there were four point of view characters. So I took two, he took two. By the third book, that was getting less true. It, so what had happened was, you know, I, I didn't know how to, I'd written some, some short stories and stuff, but I'd never written a novel. So the first book was me learning how to write a novel under Daniel's sort of tutelage. And then the second book was really like learning how to have a voice and have a character voice because in the first book, I just wrote one guy. So there was only one voice I needed to pull off by the second book when I'm writing two different people, um, you know, ha- having a voice be distinct from the other voice was a skill set I was learning by the third book we had gotten to a point where it was more like this chapter is going to have a lot of space battles in it. Why don't you write that one? Uh, This chapter is going to have like a character being sad because of a romantic failure. I'll write that one. It got to that point because by that point, either of us could write any of the characters, pull the voice off. So it it didn't have to divide it up by character anymore. And then uh, once the TV show started, um, Daniel didn't do a lot of the, he, he, you know, he had a young kid. He didn't want to be away from home. And my wife was in England uh, finishing up her PhD. So I, I was kind of by myself at my house. So I was like, yeah, I'll go live in Toronto for six months. Um, and because of that, I was doing a lot of onset producing, a lot of writing on the show. So Daniel would do a lot more of sort of the first drafts of chapters. We would still outline together. He'd do a sort of a first draft. He'd send it to me. I'd do a rewrite pass on it. And so he was doing a lot more of sort of the, the early drafts of chapters. And then on these later books, it changed again because we weren't as busy with the show. So we went back to swapping back and forth and it just, whatever, whatever the needs of the situation are, do whatever. That's, that's pretty amazing that you've been able to kind of uh, develop and uh, adapt with that kind of, kind of creative partnership. 
without, I, I mean, have you, uh, honestly, and genuinely, you don't have to answer this question if you don't want to, but have you had any big hiccups in your kind of professional partnership? Uh, you mean like disagreements? Yeah I, I, yeah, I suppose. Anything where you guys genuinely kind of looked at each other and went, man, this isn't this, at least what we're working on this moment, it isn't working with our two different visions, that kind of thing. Not really. Uh, so the Daniel and I have a very sort of different uh, outlook on many things, but the, the one place where we have a very similar outlook is, is on creative stuff that with a collaboration, and if you're ever going to collaborate, you have to go into it knowing this. The final product is not going to be what you would have written by yourself. And if you're constantly trying to force it to be the thing you would have written by yourself, um, that's when it doesn't work. That's when it fails. So you got to, it, it's like, it's okay. It's, it's jazz, you know? I mean, I don't know if you're a musician, but it's, you know, when, when you're playing with other people and you're improvising and they start doing their little, their little solo, you have no control over that. You just gotta, you know, you just gotta hold down your end of the song and, and go where they're going. Right. And something really interesting comes out of that. And, and as long as you're okay with that, as long as you, as you accept that that's how it's going to work, you're going to be fine. But the thing you have to, that you all have to agree on is what the end product is supposed to look like as far as like tone and theme. So early on, our feel, our you know, our agreement was always best idea wins. We're always right, trying to write the most awesome version of things. So whenever we had a, I wouldn't even call it disagreement. Whenever we had two different ideas on what a scene or a chapter or a plot should look like, we would both state our idea, and it was always obvious which of the two was the awesome one. So you both state your thing, and one of the two of us would go, "No, yeah, you're right. That one is more awesome. We should do that one." And every single time, that's always been the. Uh, how we got out of any disagreements we had was just lay out your argument. And then, you know, if we're being honest, one of the, one of them is going to be better than the other. Uh, that That is super cool. I actually really love that approach because then it's, then it's, you know, the best of two different creative professionals rather than the two of you bumping heads on things constantly. Yeah. And, and, and if you want to write your own thing, neither of us has stopped from doing solo work. So, you know, this is, this is the joint project. And you, you know that. And then if you want to do your own solo thing where you have absolute control, you can always do that. Fine. Now, do you have solo projects going on? Uh, I haven't written any solo books, at least yet. But, you know, I've, I've written screenplays. I've uh, done story consulting on a, a number of high profile video games. Because, um, I, I mean, I, I'm a gamer. That's that's my background. That's all my early writing was in gaming. So, um that's the, the solo projects I've done so far have all sort of been gaming related. Right. Right. So what, when you, I mean, having a really strong hand in novel writing and TV writing and in game writing is, do you feel like you have to approach those th three different things in three different ways? Or do you just kind of go in and say ties here, I'm doing my thing and we'll see what it looks like at the end. I mean, they're, they're, yeah, they're three different things. They're three different ways of telling stories. Um, so early on when I was, most of my writing was for like tabletop, you know, role-playing uh, when, you know, Daniel and I started working on the expanse. If you try to take your, you know, I, I tell people this all the time. They're like, Oh, I, I heard the expanse started out as a tabletop game. I'm like, yes. If you try to write a novel of your D and D campaign, it will suck. That's a shitty novel. You can't do that. Now you can maybe take some themes or some, some, characters at a high level or maybe some general plot points and turn it into a novel. But the way a story is developed in a novel and the way the story is developed in a tabletop game are completely different things. And you just got to know that. Um, and the same is true with like video games. Uh, the way a story is presented to a player and the way a player learns about the story of the game is very different than when they're reading a novel. And TV is the same way. You know, you can't write a, a television script like you would write a 42 page short story. You can't because a short story doesn't have a camera. So, you know, you know, and in a script, you're always writing for the camera. If the, if the camera can't see something, you don't put it in a script. So, whereas of course, in a, in a story or novel, you're constantly telling people things that a camera can't see, you know, what's going on in people's heads, the, the feelings that they have, those sorts of things. So uh, you, you got to understand the limitations and strengths of your medium. And then you got to write to those limitations as well. Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, I, I also imagine that there is some level of understanding that whether you're collaborating or not, 
that each of those different mediums, the writer has a different level of importance in them. You know, like when you're a novelist, the writer is the important, right? But you kind of go, go down the, the kind of pecking order a little bit as you work through those other mediums. Well, it, it depends on what you mean by important. So uh, a novelist is very important to their book and generally to a very small audience compared to other media. Um, a TV writer is part of a team, so less sort of solo master of their domain, but their work will be seen by millions of people. A game writer is very, very unimportant. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> in video games, the writers are like the least important people there. Uh, but, you know, I mean, uh, a, a popular video game will sell 50 million copies in the first weekend. So, yeah, I mean, what, what, what do you mean by importance? Like you get to have the total creative voice or you get your work seen by the most people. I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, very, two very different things, right? Uh, that's yeah, that's a that's a funny way to look at it, because I, I I guess when I was talking about importance, I kind of meant importance to the people that are running the show in general. You know, as a novelist, that'd be but your publisher, um, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, it's, it is funny how writers can do roughly the same thing in different, in different mediums, but they kind of their necessity to being there. Like from what I understand with TV writers as well is, is that TV writers are, are, I mean, this is going to sound so condescending, but a bit of a, treated like they're a bit di- dime a dozen and and that's kind of a weird thought coming from somebody like me whose whole career is in novels i i wouldn't say that that's true i think so the the great thing about working in tv is writers are the bosses uh so if you work in features directors are the bosses and so the writer you you produce a script the director takes that script and they're going to do whatever they want with it they don't need your input they don't need your agreement um if they allow you to be part of the process, that's that's them allowing you. That's not because you automatically get that. And on the feature side, there's this idea that um, screenplays need to be writ- written over and over. So you know, you'll see, you might see one name as the writer of a movie, but there's probably in many cases half a dozen to a dozen people who wrote drafts of that script um, whose names just never get to be put on it. Uh, on TV, especially at the producer level. You're the boss. Um, your script, often you will produce your own script. So you'll be, you know, you'll be on set, you'll be running production meetings, you'll be, you know, working directly with the director. Uh, the director actually in TV, the directors work for the writers rather than the other way around. So director doesn't get to decide to change something. <laughs> they they have to come to you and go, Hey, I, I I would like to make this change. And you can say no, and they have to do it the way you want them to. So I, I would say dime a dozen. No, I would say that if you are staffing in TV and you are not at a high level, if, if, if people don't come offering you work, if you have to actually go pound the payment to find work, it could be a little, probably a little um, scary uh, because, you know, it, a staff writer on a TV show makes a fair amount of money. And so if you've staffed for a couple of years and are used to that income and Suddenly you can't find your next, you know, your show gets canceled and you can't find your next job. Yeah, I, I'm getting, I'm guessing that's probably pretty scary. Um, I, Daniel and I are fortunate not to be in that position. At this point, people offer us work. We don't have to go look for it. And, you know, I mean, like all of my bills, all of my retirement, all of everything was long ago paid for by The Expanse, the books. So, you know, anything we do on the TV side is kind of frosting at this point. <laughs> that's a that's an excellent place to be, isn't it? Yeah, it's nice to be able to say no. It's nice to, you know, if somebody offers you something and and uh, you don't want to take it, you, you don't have to, which is great. I, I've been very fortunate on a, on a much smaller level, you know, within the publishing community to be able to be in that situation. And it is a it, 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 it's definitely a a measure of comfort to be able to say you know what? I've got a full plate. I actually have lots of things going on and I can pay my bills. And so I'm sorry, but I'm not going to do this. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's nice to be able to say no. And, and a lot of writers start out, uh, Daniel talks about this, um, cause he came up through the, I, I came up a very non-traditional path, but Daniel came up with a much more traditional path where you, you start out, you go to conventions, you sell a couple of short stories. Maybe you get a story in Asimov's and that's like a big deal. Um, and then eventually at some point, uh, 
maybe an agent reaches out to you and goes, oh, I read your short story in Asimov's. Have you ever thought about writing a novel? Like, you know, that that's sort of the path or that used to be. I don't know if it still is, but that sort of used to be the path. And he said, when you come up that way, you never say no to anything because you're not paying your bills with your writing. You're, you're trying to get to that point. And so if some editor says, hey, will you give me a story for this anthology? You just automatically say yes. Yes, absolutely. I'll write a story for your anthology. Of course I will. And he said it was it was very weird for him to get to a point where somebody would say, hey, you want to be in my anthology? And he'd say, no, I actually don't. I don't want to be in that anthology um, because he's just so used to saying yes to everything. So I, I understand that. I understand that like for most writers, uh, being able to say no is is a luxury they can't afford yet. Yeah. And it's it's kind of a I mean, where you kind of stand with a lot of industries, not just creative ones, but, you know, if if you are kind of lower down and working your way up, you've, you've got to be that yes man constantly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm sure that's it. So at the lower level in TV, I'm sure that's true. If you're a staff writer, um, yeah, you, you, you take the job that they offer you. Um, I mean, I, I, I have friends who are, are writers in the TV world and at all different levels, I've got friends who are like high level showrunners and I've got friends who are working at the staff level. And, um, if, if a show offers you a job, it doesn't matter if you hate that show, you still go right for it. I, I, have, I have a friend who went and wrote for one of those uh, terrible network procedurals. She hated it. She worked there for a year. She hated every moment. She thought it was the dumbest show she'd ever been on. Every script she wrote, she felt like she was just prostituting herself. Um, and, you know, they for a year that paid all her bills and funded her retirement and funded her health care and you know, you just you just knuckle down and you do it, and then you hope that you can find a better show the next year. Oh, that's got to be a, a little bit soul crushing. <laughs> I I have been told that people who work on the network side and have an entire career as staffing on the network side, I, I have been told that it is a little soul crushing. That by the end, you don't even you know, like everything's so formulaic on that side that you just you you get really good at writing that formula and you know, sort of all the creative juices go away. You just crank out these formulas. Right. Right. Like you're, you're not gonna, you're not gonna be even allowed to go near the format for, you know, like writing on law and order or something like that. No, 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 nobody on NCIS is changing the, changing the paradigm. Yeah. Yeah. Like the best you're going to get is maybe, you know, maybe you can influence two characters falling in love or something. Right. Yeah. Except that most of those shows on the network side still don't do long format storytelling. They still do episodic storytelling. So you, you probably won't get to have two characters falling in love because by the next episode, <laughs> everything has been reset. It'll be something different. Yeah. 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 I, I remember getting uh, really into the original, um, was it CSI? Uh, that, uh, and, and it had like, it had story arcs that were kind of broad yeah. across the, you know, the, procedural episodes and i i honestly i ate that up i thought it was so much fun that you could have a character who would have a callback to something that had happened five six episodes before well one of my one of my closest friends in hollywood uh ran that show for eight years oh wow yeah um and he's a very good writer and he has very definite ideas about what television storytelling should look like so i'm sure his influence is felt in that sort of longer form storytelling and, and those, those bigger story beats. I'm sure his influence is there because, uh, and I, and I think, and I think CSI, at least the early seasons of CSI were the best example of that, where it was like network procedural, but just felt smarter somehow just felt a little more like a real story. Yeah. Yeah. I was very much drawn to that. I was in college at the time. So I think it was probably the first yeah. five or six seasons. And I, I really liked that. That was my, Brian's depressed and skipping class today. So he's going to sit on the couch and watch something at 2 PM. And I love that. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I, I thought, I thought the first like eight seasons of that show were great or maybe seven uh, up until, up until uh, Billy Peterson leaves. Yeah. When Billy Peterson leaves it, the show definitely isn't as good. Uh, it's, it's good stuff though. <laughs> Hey, Page Break listeners, Brian here, rudely interrupting myself for a bit of a plug. Making a podcast isn't free, and I'm hoping that you enjoy it enough to pitch in a pittance. To do so, head on over to patreon.com pagebreak, where you can toss as little as $3 a month into the tip jar, $5 a month to get the podcast ad-free and early, 
and $10 a month to hear your name in the credits and feel a smug sense of superiority. You can also buy my books from your favorite retailer or direct from my website. Thanks to everyone who contributes. Now back to me. So we we talked a bit about you kind of working you know, continuously in these collaborative sort of things. Um, so do you feel like that's just a very comfortable place for you is to collaborate on you, whatever media you're working on? Maybe. I, I, I guess so. I, I'm a, as a musician, I'm a bass player. I'm a, I'm an accompanist. Yeah. And I, I like, uh, so the thing I love about being a bass player is no, if you're not a musician, you don't know this, but the bass player is the boss of the song. The bass player ties the rhythm section and the melodic sections together. And in most rock songs, the bass player is deciding what the song sounds like, you know, because if you're if you're a guitar player and you're playing power chords, I get to pick a third note that either turns your chord into a major or a minor chord. So I get to decide if the song sounds sad or it sounds happy or, you know, so and I've always sort of liked that. I was always like being the guy behind the scenes that nobody's paying attention to, but I'm sort of driving the whole thing. Yeah. In in writing, I'm I'm a plotter. I'm. I'm, and I'm also a, um, I'm also a world builder. So I like, I like being the guy in the room who goes, no, 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 here's what the world looks like. Here's what the, here's what the big plot movements are. Here's the things like that's for me, that's the bass playing of, of the writing room, right? Is, is I'm down there, I'm, I'm holding down the bottom end. I'm going, here's what the world looks like. Here's the big plot movements. Now you can go over here and you can do a little solo over there and you can go do a little solo over there. That's fine. I don't care. Um, but I'm holding down the bottom end and maybe I just sort of gravitate to that sort of thing where I like like holding down the bottom end of the story and letting other people go put their little frills on top. But, uh, you know, the, the expanse, the expanse was my idea. I, we, we have another, we have another television show that we're sort of in development on. And, um, when it, it's a, it's a more popular IP that, that we got a hold of. And when they were like, what should we do with this? I'm the one who said, okay, here's, here's the story. And that's the story that we're developing. And now, you know, we're putting all the other details on top, but the major plot is, is my idea. And I like I like being that guy. Yeah. Oh, that that's really cool. I, I was, I, I noticed that you've compared writing to music quite a lot. And I am, I am not a musician. I like music, but I have zero musical talent whatsoever. And I, is that something that has kind of always uh, correlated very directly in your head? No, but it's, 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 um you know, creative endeavors, right? And it's two creative endeavors I've done. So, you know, I'm sure if I was a painter, I'd be talking about painting, <laughs> but I've never painted. I'm not a painter. So when, when you're working in a writing room with other, with other writers prepping for a show, are there moments when you're converting something that you created into the screen? Are there moments where you kind of feel that ping of, you know, in your brain of, man, I, I feel like they're not getting it or or maybe they're going in a direction that i'm not feeling right about but i understand that it's tv and it's different media do you have complicated feelings about converting something from novel to screen um i think more so in the first season so in the first season uh daniel and i were in the writer's room but we were there sort of more as uh, we didn't have an official title. So it, we, our contract on the show was we were producers for life of the show, but that's like generic producer. That's just like, you know, they give you a little money and supposedly you have input, but they don't have to listen to it. Right. So we were, we had a producer title, but it was not a writing producer title. So we had no power in the writer's room. So in the first season, when you bring in a whole bunch of people who've never worked together before together and a showrunner's coming on to sort of try to shape the thing, a lot of that initial uh, story breaking is as exploration. What are we allowed to do? How far are we allowed to go? Um, what kinds of stories are we going to tell? There were a few times where I had to stand up and make very uh, sort of impassioned arguments for why this particular path we were exploring was the wrong one. And I was fortunate in that the showrunner and Rain would listen to that. And you know, and if we, and Daniel and I would say, if you do that, you are breaking stuff. If this goes three seasons, you have just broken the third season, right? And and here's why. And uh, you know they they would listen to that, and um, 
you know, I mean, there's always going to be, there's always going to be things different than the way you would have done it, but that's the nature of collaboration. That's okay. Uh, but the big things that would break the story, I think we were allowed to make an argument on those things. And most of the time they would listen. Narain learned, Narain, the showrunner, he learned that he and I had a very similar sort of aesthetic sense. And so very often the version of something he liked would be the version I liked. And so I think more as the first season went on, more and more he he got to trust when I would say, no, this, uh, trust me, this, this will be better. He would go, yeah, okay, well, let's, let's try that. Um, and that got to the point that by the third season, when I was producing, actually onset producing episodes, um, he, he would just, you know, he, he's the showrunner. It's his show. He gets to make all the final decisions, but he'd go, um, I can't make it to that production meeting. Go do that one. And after the production meeting, you know, the, the department heads would call in the rain and go, Hey, what did you want to do about this? And he'd say, well, what did Ty say? And they'd go, well, he said that he wanted this and Yeah, we'll just do that. It's fine. And, and we, you know, he and I shared an office and he'd be like, Hey, can you go do that prop meeting for me? And I go, well, what do you have an opinion on what that thing should look like? He'd go, you know what I like, just have, have him, have him, you, you know what I, you know what I'll like, you know what I don't like, just go do it. Um, so that trust grew over the seasons. And because of that, if I made a, an impassioned argument for why something shouldn't be done, I knew at least I was going to get a, you know, I was going to get a, an open-minded listen from from the showrunner. Ah, that's that's really rad because I, I imagine that that kind of narrative trust is just so important to making something really good for TV. Well, and it if if your showrunner wants to collaborate, I mean, some showrunners just want the thing to be their thing, um, and you're if you're the showrunner, you're the boss, so you get to just decide. Um, there's plenty of shows on TV where the showrunner rewrites every single script because they don't want anyone else's voice. Uh, and you know, you can, you're allowed to do that. If you're a showrunner, you can, you can get away with that. Yeah. Narain wasn't like that. That's not what our show was like. Now, did you find yourself really enjoying working on that side of things that, that wasn't just being the writer? I, I guess so. I mean, I like I liked learning new stuff. Um, and every, and there was a lot of new things to learn. Um, and I, I, I come out of the, you know, in my misty past, I came out of the corporate world where I was generally at a pretty high level uh, in in management. Um, so I'm used to I'm used to a crew. I, I mean, a, a employee base of hundreds of people that I get to make the decisions for. So that's what a television production is. It's hundreds of people working on a thing. And if you're the senior producer on set or you're the showrunner, everybody's looking to you. But that doesn't scare me because I I used to do that. So that that wasn't scary for me. And I, you know, I, I got to learn how to make a TV show and I, I turned out I was good at it. So, um, you know, by the, by the last couple of seasons, I, it, Noreen and I were kind of splitting it. He, uh, in the last couple of seasons, the, the schedule was so tight. He'd stay in LA running the writer's room, getting the final scripts done. I'd be out in Toronto prepping the scripts we already had, prepping the episodes. And, you know, we'd talk on the phone all the time, but he trusted me to prep the episodes. He was out there writing. Um, if stuff needed to be written on the day, he'd say, yeah, just go ahead and do a rewrite on that. You know, send me the pages with the changes so I can look over them, but you know, just do it. Um, so yeah, by the end it was, it was very much sort of a, a team effort there between the two of us. And how much was Daniel involved with this on the TV side? Uh, as I said, he, uh, his daughter was fairly young, so he didn't want to spend months and months and months out in Toronto. Uh, but you know, I mean, he was very involved on the writing side for sure. Uh, when we would write the episodes, um, you know, he was there for the story breaks uh, early on. He, you know, he and I would work together on multiple episodes each season on the on the writing of them. Um, toward the end, he was more heavily involved in sort of the rewriting piece of it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he was really involved, He, but it was mostly on the writing side because he could do that and still sort of be with his family. It was, you know, it was much harder for him to, you know, because being an onset producer is a 14 hour a day job uh, and then you're sleeping in a hotel. So it just, there was just no way for him to do that and and have the time for his family that he wanted. Yeah, for sure. Now, tell me a little bit about that misty past that you referenced. Where where were you before you kind of jumped out into the writing world? Uh, well, I the last two jobs, I so I I was the the director of operations for a, a computer manufacturing company. That I, we didn't have a VP of operations, so I was sort of the highest ranking operations management in uh, in that company, and um, did that for I don't know five or six years. And then when I left there, uh, helped or worked with a, a group of other guys to start a consulting company. Um, so uh, for like six or seven years, 
um, was a, a senior partner in a technology consulting company. And consulting is a crazy world. Yeah. My, my brother's a consultant. He was he was with McKinsey for a while, and uh, and I think he just does freelance now these days. Yeah, and it's just a crazy place to be at. Well, I mean, if consulting for one of the big firms like McKinsey, you're it's like being a lawyer. It's all about how many billable hours can you get, and uh, yeah, and that's always the drive is to maximize your billable time for the big firms. We were a we were a small firm, so it was uh, it was it was less about that early on. But uh, the reason that I quit is because. I, I sold out of that company, you know, when I moved to New Mexico uh, with my wife, so she could go to school. Um, I sold out my part of that company, and part of the reason was that I could. It, it just felt like it was moving more and more toward that, like, so that you start out and everybody's like, "Hey, we should start our own company, and then we could do what we want. And if we want to golf on Wednesdays, we can, right?" And then after a couple of years, they go, "You know what? If everybody builds a ton of time, we can make a lot of money." And then suddenly. It's every it's you can feel it turning into that grind of like, hey, let's maximize our billable hours and then we'll all get huge quarterly bonuses. And I I've never been particularly money motivated. I'm much more time motivated. So like, hey, if we all work, you know, 80 hours a week, look how much money we can make. I'm like, oh, or I could work less and make less money and I don't care. So, yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Now, now, where did the where did your transition go from corporate to creative? Well, I I I was retiring. I I sold out my part of the company. My wife was going to school uh, to get her uh, architecture degree at UNM, and she was going to be an architect. I was going to be a house husband. I, that was where we were going. I you know I I had she had she had done volunteer work our entire married life, so she was always busy, but she never got paid. So. After 20 years of that, she was like, hey, I'll become an architect. I'll get I'll do all the money part and then you can, you know, make me dinner and keep the house clean. I'm like, yeah, that sounds great. And play just a ton of video games. <laughs> <laughs> so that was what we were supposed to be doing. Uh, and then what wound up happening is she decided not to just stop at architecture. She got invited to go out and get a Ph.D., an engineering PhD at the number one engineering school in the entire world on a full ride scholarship. So we were like, yeah, of course you have to do that. So that sort of threw the monkey wrench into our plans. And while that was happening, Daniel and I had started writing the books and that was just a, that was just for fun. That was never like, I'm going to write books and be a writer now. You know, Daniel and I had written the first book and it, that first book was a huge success, which came as a great surprise to, to me for sure. And then suddenly I was a novelist and, um, you know, that's where most of the money was coming from. And, uh, that was very unexpected. So I, I don't know. I, I've, I've never had a plan. Like here we go back to jazz, you know, <laughs> jazz, you, you got, you got a chord progression and you got a beat and, um, everybody just kind of plays what they feel. And I've always just been sort of, you know, playing what I feel and seeing where it goes. Right. And, and it turns out people like some of that, huh? Well, I mean, some people like jazz. <laughs> uh, now when did you meet daniel well uh, when we moved to new mexico my, my wife was going to the architecture program at unm so we wound up living in albuquerque so she could easily get back and forth to, to school and daniel lived in albuquerque and um i think we had met briefly at uh, a convention called buboniCon in albuquerque so we knew each other kind of and yeah so we just wind up hanging out. Oh, that's very cool. That's a fortuitous meeting, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, all the best things in my life are because something came up accidentally and I said, yes. Um, you know, Daniel, uh, I was running a role-playing game for a bunch of people up in Santa Fe. George R. Martin was one of my players. Um, you know, uh, Walter John Williams, like, so I had like some very famous writers in my, in my gaming group. And Daniel said, Hey, I hear this game that you're running is awesome. Would you run it for my wife and I? And I was like, okay. So I, I ran a couple of sessions for Daniel and his wife and my wife. And after one of those sessions, he said, you know, there's enough world building here. This could be a book. Would you be interested in turning this into a book? And I, I wasn't, but I, I find that most of the time, if, if something comes up that I'm not sure about, I'll just say yes and see what happens. So I said, yeah, sure. Let's try that. And everything sort of launched from there. And w when it, when, when everything kind of, when was the point at which you, realized that oh i'm telling stories now for you know in in novel form like was that was that when the first book started to be received well well i, I mean if so I, i'm i'm always everybody's favorite dm 
Like I've since since high school, I've always been the guy who you know everybody wants to play in my games. So I've always been a storyteller that way. And you know they say you got to write ten thousand pages of crap before you can write something good. My ten thousand pages of crap were definitely game scenario stuff for like D and D and and you know Star Frontiers and all those role playing games we all played when we were kids. That's where I got my ten thousand pages of crap out of the way. Um, so I'd always been a storyteller in that way. It just Daniel had to teach me how to focus it for the novel side, uh, which he was very good at. He's a he's a good teacher, and you know, and I I that piece wasn't that it wasn't that hard to learn because it's just taking something I was already doing and sort of shaping it to this new medium, which was also like what going into TV was like. I was already doing that. Now I just got to shape it to this new medium. Was there anything that you had to unlearn when you kind of changed mediums? Oh, there. It's not that you unlearn, it's just that you learn. So writing is, 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 a, is a toolbox and all the different things you do, when you learn how to write a short story, you put some tools in your toolbox. When you learn how to write a novel, you put some other tools in your toolbox. And some of those tools are shared across the things and some of them are different. And so when I learned, you know, uh, I had a bunch of tools in my toolbox from creating game scenarios for D&D. Many of those tools didn't work in novel writing, but a few of them did. You know, and so the, I think the trick to being a writer who works in a lot of different mediums is when you open your toolbox, just knowing which tools work for that thing and not trying to force, you know, not trying to drive nails with your screwdriver, just going, okay, I'm in TV now. Here's the things that work in TV. I'll leave all those other tools alone that they're not useful to me right now. Um, you know, when you're writing in TV, the interior monologue hammer, just leave that in the toolbox. Now you don't need the interior monologue hammer now, but the writing for camera screwdriver, that's really important. But the writing for camera screwdriver, not super important when you're writing a novel. So, you know, it's it's just knowing which things work. I've Something I've realized about myself over the last couple of years is that I don't codify those tools in my head. Mm. You know, like I've, I've always, I, and I think part of it is a consequence of having kind of grown up and get, gotten into my career kind of underneath the shadow of Brandon Sanderson, because Brandon codifies <laughs> everything yeah and he talks about everything and so there's some part of my brain that subconsciously or not early in my career said brandon does all that you don't have to think about that kind of thing you know that's already brandon's thing just just write and write and write and that's it and and i these last couple of years i've started to realize man i i don't have those kind of tools all sorted in my brain and maybe that would be a really good thing to start doing before I hit my 40s. I don't know. I mean, for me, those tools are just metaphors, right? So, yeah, I mean, uh, obviously, there's I, I don't have an actual tool called the interior monologue hammer, but you should. <laughs> but interior monologue is a thing you do in novels. Yeah, um, it's not a thing you do in TV. It's not a thing you do in generally in video games. Um, and, you know, knowing which things are useful in which mediums uh obviously TV writing, you know, third person omniscient, not a useful tool in TV writing. Yeah. It's just, it's just knowing what, what the format wants you to do and leaning into that. That's all. And, and, and everything else is just a metaphor for wrapping your head around that idea. I, I don't codify everything either. I, like I said, I'm an, I'm an improviser. I'm a, I'm a jazz musician. I just give me, give me a beat and a chord progression and let's go. Yeah. Yeah. Get, get, get the vibe of things. You know, I've, yeah. I, I've always talked about with, you know, when people ask me about, Oh, how do you learn to write? How, how do you learn to pace things? And, and man, to me, there's like a, there's like a cadence to pacing that I cannot explain to other people that is just in my head. And, and it, maybe it's a bit like music in that I just very naturally feel the cadence of how a, how, how a, how a novel is progressing, how the narrative is progressing. And and it's so hard to explain that to people. It is. Yeah. And I learned pacing from running games um, because there, there's, there is this sort of interest band with your players, right? Where, or an interest curve is probably a better way to say it. So when the really interesting stuff is happening, where the world is revealing itself and where the plot is revealing itself and, and those sorts of things are happening, everybody's sort of leaning forward and looking at you and waiting to hear the next thing. And then you can get into stuff in the game where like when I was playing, nobody had cell phones, but now, you know, everybody starts looking at their phone or they're, you know, they get up and they start puttering around in the kitchen, trying to find a drink or something. Right. So you get a real, the nice thing about gaming is you get instant feedback. 
here's the thing that keeps the audience interested. Here's stuff that they kind of, their minds wander. And so when I'm writing, I, I almost feel like the, the novel writing is me running a game. The reader is the player and I'm trying to keep their focus. I'm trying to keep them looking at me. And I think that's where I kind of learn how to paste stuff. You know, how, how often you need a reveal so that they go, oh my God, that's the thing. And now they're really leaning across the table toward you, right? So, something I something I kind of, uh, I kind of look at along those lines is the way that you get some creators who will, who will kind of kick back, you know, like if uh, th- they'll get angry about, uh, you know, like, like you were saying, if somebody gets up and goes puttering around the kitchen or uh, is checking their cell phone, I think it's very easy to kind of say, oh, well, they just have a short attention span. And same with a book, a show, whatever. I think it's very easy to say, oh, people these days, they just always looking at their phones. And and I've always tried to approach it as if if I'm losing someone's interest, then that's probably on me. And I need to be I need to figure out what's what's getting boring. What is it that I'm, you know, kind of falling behind on how to adjust, how to keep people engaged? Yeah. Well, I, that's, that's Elmore Leonard's famous little quote, right? That, that, uh, when he's writing a book, he, he tries to find all the places that people skim and just not write those. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, if you, if you could master that skill, you know, Elmore Leonard is one of the greatest American novelists. So if you can master that skill, um, that's a, uh, that's pretty powerful. That, that was, that was very much my approach. Uh, when I was, you know, a little baby writer, um, was like, I love epic fantasy, but man, epic fantasy just takes forever to get anywhere. <laughs> yeah. And what if I wrote epic fantasy that had the pacing of urban fantasy? Right. And and that's where I ended up with Promise of Blood was trying to do something like that. And I and and it's been like pacing has been a kind of a preoccupation of my entire kind of. Uh, um, professional creator sort of, you know, thought process. Um, and I, I, cause I, I feel like every author kind of has that thing that they spend more time on than, than, than they do other things. And for me, it's pacing. Mm. Yeah. I don't think about pacing a lot, but I can tell when it's not good. Like I can, you know, you can just sort of feel it, um, again, back with the music metaphors, you know, like if you, I, you know, you don't think about not hitting a sour note, but when you hit one, it's really apparent, you know, like you can absolutely hear it. Or if, if you start to lose the time, you know, if you start to get off the beat, you can, you can just feel it in your bones that you're in the, you know, you're at the wrong, the wrong pay, uh, the wrong rhythm. And I think that's true when you're, when you're, when you're writing and then you reread the stuff you just wrote and you're like, oh my God, that 2000 words there is just horrible. It's like so tedious. I wouldn't want to read that. Eh, you should probably just delete that and Try something else. Right. Right. I, I found a, um, one of my, one of my COVID obsessions kind of like, you know, when you're in your own brain for way too long, uh, one of my COVID obsessions was getting information across to the, uh, reader. And I, I've realized over the last year or so, I've just been uh, like, Brian, you've got to stop focusing so much on the next piece of information to give to the reader <laughs> and focus more on what's fun and what's moving this plot forward. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's weird how I'm like, man, I'm like at that point, you know, eight, nine years into my career and I'm still making these mistakes. Well, I, nobody knows anything. That's if, if you're a wannabe writer listening to this, uh, the, probably the most important rule you can learn early on is nobody knows anything. There are writers who are successful and there are writers who are not successful. And the difference between them is impossible to codify. It's like we all tell it. We tell ourselves a story that we've learned things and that's why we're good. But (laughs) the truth is E.L. James has sold more books than any of us ever will added together. And she's terrible. So, (laughs) I mean, (laughs) nobody knows nothing. Uh, Yeah. So, I mean, uh, that thing of like, you know, you're you're eight years into this and you're still making mistakes. There are people 30 years into this and they're still making mistakes. I I have friends who have been writing for years you know, 30 some years and they'll call and they'll be like, I've forgotten how to write because everybody forgets how to write. Like you, you finish a book. You're like, I am so good. I finished this book. And then you start writing the next book. And you're like, I don't know how to write. I've forgotten how to do it. I'm terrible. I'm the worst. It happens every time. It's, if you're going to be a writer, you just got to get used to that and learn how to 
you know, tune it, tune that noise out of your head. Well, and it can be incredibly frustrating to be looking at yourself in the mirror and like, I am a professional. I'm good at this. Why is this stupid scene so hard to get onto paper? Yeah. And, and yeah, everybody does it. Everybody has that moment. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, so I saw I saw that um, I've seen Expanse praised particularly for kind of a higher degree of I, I want to say realism than than most space operas go for because space opera is kind of known for that sort of that fuzzy area between hard science fiction and you know going full on fantasy. Were you guys really trying to uh, to aim for that sort of more realistic vibe to it? No, no I, we we get a lot of credit for it. That the one thing that we kept, no, two the two things that we kept that that make it seem harder than it actually is is inertia in our books works the way inertia works in real life, and we light speed delay is still a thing, and so those two things. That's it. That's all the realism we've got is inertia and light speed. And um, I think because those two things are so consistently hand waved away, um, it makes it feel very, very different. But that's just because those two, you know, you look at Star Trek inertia, there's no inertia in Star Trek. You know, you'll be traveling at literally dozens of times the speed of light and come to a dead stop in one second. And everyone inside is entirely comfortable through that entire process. There's no inertia in that universe and you have hyperspace communication, right? So if I want, if I'm, you know, in the Arcturus sector and I still want to talk to Starfleet command in San Francisco, we just get on the hyper wave, whatever hyperspace communicator. And we have instantaneous communication across thousands of light years. Those two things are hand waved by almost every space opera. And we just don't, those two things, we just don't like and the reason isn't because we're smarter or better. The reason is because we liked we liked the complications those two things bring to the plot. We like that I'm out here by Jupiter. There's a big problem. I need information from somebody on Earth, but it's going to take over an hour for me to get an answer. That's a nice plot complication, right? That it's not instantaneous. It, uh, um, we like that turning the ship around and going a different direction could kill everybody inside if you do it too fast. That's a nice plot complication. Um, and we felt by hand-waving those things away, you lose interesting plot stuff. That's the only reason we did it, not because we're smart. <laughs> well, and those two things are very, are they're huge within the universe. Like the, the, the whole universe and everything going on in the plots and characters and everything, they're all kind of, they all revolve around those two things. So it's, it's, it's not even like it's like a small, oh, this was a little change we decided to do. That's, that's just a, it's a massive kind of consequence for what the series that you ended up writing. Well, and, and I, I've always felt that the most interesting plot comes from the world building that comes from the limitations in the world building. Like you, you, you write stories about uh, magic that includes gunpowder, right? Yeah. And by, and by adding gunpowder into your magic system, you create all sorts of plots, possible plot ideas by doing that, right? And shying away from that just means you have fewer plots. So like adding that complication into the world 
creates plot ideas. And, and so like the more complications you can put in your world, like I, I, I don't understand writers who are like, well, I wouldn't want to do that. That just, that complicates things. I'm like, complication is the point. Complication is what we're here to do. It's, is telling complicated stories is what people fall in love with. Um, uh, the first season of the show, Mark and Hawk, the, the guys who wrote the pilot were EPs in the, in the first couple of seasons. When we were talking, when we were breaking the first season, right away, they wanted to start hand-waving. So, because, you know, they're feature guys. you got 90 minutes. You don't have room for a lot of complication. Just blast through it, right? And all the sci-fi movies they had watched had always hand-waved these things away. So, we were talking about how light delay works. And I forget it was his marker hawk. But one of them said, well, we're going to we're gonna have to change that. We're going to, like, we can't have people not able to communicate with each other in the show. And... Noreen, fortunately, the showrunner was on my side on that one because like, no, that's what I like about this. I like that we have this complication. And at one point, I think it was Hawk said to me, goes, you know what? Why did we want to fix this? This is great. We've solved the cell phone problem because these guys have written a lot of thrillers. And what they call the cell phone problem is now that we're in the cell phone age, most thriller plots just go away because it used to be, oh, oh I found out that there's a bomb under the table at my, you know, at, at this place. And so I got to drive across town at high speed so I can get there in time to stop this bomb from going off in the cell phone age. You just call me, Hey, there's a bomb under the table. You should get out of there. Right. And so the cell phone problem is how do you have a thriller when everyone can instantly communicate with everyone else all the time? How do you, how do you still have a thriller in that world? They started realizing that the light speed thing solves the cell phone problem. It's like, Oh no, there's a bomb under the table in that office on that moon of Jupiter, but I'm on earth. If I send them a message, they won't get it for 45 minutes. Yeah. They're like, Oh, now the thriller had, now we can do thrillers again. Right. So I think sometimes writers shy away from these complicated ideas because they're, they're, they're like, well, I don't want to have to deal with that. I don't want to deal with it, but dealing with it is where plot comes from. So don't be scared of that stuff. Leave it, you know, let that complicated shit be in your world. Well, and I think that there is like a, like there's totally a point in that those complicated things, they can be very intimidating because the the whole, the problem with them being complicated is because you as the author have to translate that complication into narrative without losing momentum. And, and that can be very difficult, but also, like you said, it's also a great place to find opportunity. Yeah. Well, and, and I like to, uh, I like to imply rather than state. And I feel like, Stop trying to explain your world to your reader. Just tell them what it feels like to be in that world. They'll pick it up. They'll they'll understand what the world, how the world works, because the characters are living in it, and they and what the characters do explains the world to the reader. You know, if you if you have your if you have your characters talk about having to turn the ship around and fire the drive to slow the ship down, you don't have to explain inertia to your reader. They'll pick it up that you're implying how it works by what the characters are doing. Um, I, and I think I. One of the things that sort of pushed me out of epic fantasy, and I understand a lot of really exciting things have been happening in epic fantasy over the last couple of decades, but you know, clear back when I was reading it as a teenager, one of the things that pushed me out is suddenly every book I read had to start with this like 30,000 word treatise on how the world works. <laughs> and, and I also think that's why everybody was like, oh, don't write prologues. But that's because prologues were terrible. Prologues were like... Uh, in the year 1473 of the great orc invasion, like, and then there's 10,000 words of prologue where they're explaining the world to you. Yes, that's terrible. But if you have a couple of characters in a bar having drinks and one of them's talking about, you know, how he lost his arm in the orc wars, you're implying things about the world without stating them. And then I think that the reader's interested, oh, this guy only has one arm and he uh, orc cut it off with an ax. And that's interesting. And I understand something about the world. This is a world in which people have wars with orcs and orcs have axes and they cut people's arms off. And there was a war in the past and that war is over now. Just by a simple conversation, you can imply so much about the world. And I think that with those sorts of plot complications and world building complications, people get scared because they think they're going to have to explain it to the reader. Stop. Stop explaining things to the reader. Just show them what the world looks like. Show them what it feels like to live in that world. They'll pick it up. They'll, they'll understand you know, they'll get it. Yeah. I, one of the kind of, I don't have a lot of writing rules, but one of the ones that I kind of almost stumbled into very early on was the idea that I put as few uh, unfamiliar proper nouns into the first page as possible. Yeah. Uh, because it just, it's exhausting when you read 20 proper nouns that you don't have any context for. Yeah. 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 
Well, and I think a lot of less experienced people trying to break into fantasy, they think that's what fantasy is. They think fantasy is here's this weird city name and here's the names of the and these are the Crimson Grognar guards who once fought, you know, Grimdark, you know, the the Lord of the Banefeld. And like they think that's what fantasy is. And so they're trying to get as much of that in as possible very quickly so that the reader goes, oh, this must be a fantasy book because there's a Grimfeld. I agree with you. Like the people in the world don't think that way. That feels very unnatural. Let 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 the world ex- you know slowly reveal itself through the the thoughts and actions and conversations your characters are having. You don't need to just info dump all that shit on people. Yeah, it is. Uh, your reader is readers are. I feel like simultaneously stupider and far smarter than you ever expect. Yeah, and figuring out how to kind of find the middle road there. It's one of the really major difficulties of becoming a professional author. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and I I think I think you have to. I, I think the only thing any of us can do is write the books we would want to read and hope there are enough people like us out there that we sell enough books to to survive. Because nobody nobody is writing a book every single person wants to read. I mean, there there are people who hate the Harry Potter books, some of the best selling books in history. There are people who hate Ice and Fire. There are people who hate you know, uh, Neil Gaiman. Like I, I know people who hate Stephen King books. These are the best-selling authors in the world. And some people just hate their books. So nobody's writing for everybody. Just get over that. Like, and you're going to get one-star reviews. You can ignore those. You know, it does. now if every review is one star, maybe you should pay attention, but, <laughs> but you know, you, uh, I, I've always felt that reviews are like uh, Olympic judging. you take the highest score and the lowest score and you just throw them out. Um, because the people who are like, oh, you're the greatest writer that's ever lived, that, that they're full of shit. The people like, this is the worst writer who's ever lived. That person's full of shit. The people in between probably have something to say. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, hey, man, I've been keeping you for a while, but we like to wrap up this uh, each episode by asking the guest, what's the last thing that you ate that blew your mind? Uh, that blew my mind. Unfortunately, uh, we don't get to go to restaurants much anymore. So we've been, oh, you know what? Uh, I'll, I'll say this. Um, so my brother-in-law was living with us for a couple of months because we were having a bunch of work done on our house and he's a contractor. So he, we gave him free room and board in exchange for his contracting services. And while he was living here, because we weren't going to restaurants, we were trying to figure out how to make interesting food. And he figured out how to make homemade General Tso's chicken. And it turned out amazing. As as good or better than anything you get in a fine Chinese restaurant. Oh man! So that that I was very surprised how well that turned out. Yeah, that's great. I I love a good General Tso's chicken. It's yeah, and it turns out and it turned out so so good. It's it is an all day process. Oh, I I bet. Yeah, it is it is a lengthy process, but the end result was quite good. So yeah, there you go. That's the one. Oh, I'm jealous of that. That's a really good one. Oof. <laughs> yeah, some of those some of those dishes are just so incredibly hard to get right yeah. and and often include a lot of different ingredients that you don't normally keep around the house. Yeah. And, and this one definitely did. Um, and we learned, you know, we, we had to develop the recipe because the first version we did was okay, but it wasn't as flavorful as we wanted by about the third pass through when you start figuring out which things we, we needed more of and less of in the recipe um, by the third pass, it, it was really, really good. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I guess that would be the answer. That was science fiction author Ty Frank. You can find links to Ty's website and social media down in the show notes. You can find me, as always, at brianmcclellan.com. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak, or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. You can also get signed copies of my books direct from my website or swag from my Redbubble store. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. If you're listening to this via Patreon, please stick around for bonus chat during the epilogue. Special thanks to Elijah, Ivor Gullickson, James Clark, Jennifer Johnson, Jay Sonnell, and Kyle Anderson for their backing on Patreon.
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 